Welcome back to Big Noises from Media Voices, everybody. This is our sub-series where we talk to some of the most explosive and opinionated personalities in all of media. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. And I'm Peter Houston. Uh, that's what I'm talking to Ricky Sutton. Ricky is the former CEO of Uvu, which is a video platform. But I actually, <laughs> so Ricky set up that company and he stepped back as, as a CEO. Mm. Um, but his background is actually what gives him, I think, the, 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 I don't know what the right word does. It gives him the, uh, authority. The yeah. 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 You were telling me about this. It's just an, like a ridiculous <laughs> path through the industry. He started out as a local news reporter, mm. um, you know, doing local news, I guess, you know, shoe leather stuff in or yeah, probably like what's going on in the local town kind of thing. Um, but then he decided he was going to go to Bosnia. As you do. Um, as you do. And he went off, joined, I don't know if it's an aid convoy or if it was a truck going to Bosnia to mm. deliver aid. But anyway, he basically hitched a ride into a war zone and began covering the, the, the events in Bosnia. He wasn't embedded, so he got some stories that other people didn't get. Nice. Uh, which took him to the attention of the Nationals and, you know, went on from there. So he has this hybrid mix of journal and technology entrepreneur. Mm. Oh, my God. That is that is so in our wheelhouse. That is right in the center of our Venn diagram for guests on Media Voices. Uh, definitely, yes. And, and, you know, it meant we got into all sorts. Why did he do that? You know, why did he leave... <laughs> Why did he leave a secure job with a company like News Corp or whoever to go and set up a tech company, uh, which he had an interest and points of view on why that's worthwhile. Um, but also that idea of what publishing should be doing about technology. Mm. Uh, he didn't no, He didn't hold back on the uh, big tech stuff. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the phrase frenemies seems to uh, grind his gears. <laughs> I can understand that. I, I hate frenemies. I hate frenemies and I hate the word fidgetal. Like, oh, no, I heard that one. Oh, fidgetal. you lucky bastard. It's half, It's the uh, intersection of physical and digital. Oh, God. <laughs> so it sounds like it was um, an interesting chat. And he's, we were talk, talking before the recording, he set the bar so high for subsequent well, guests that's his next level so everyone we talk to cares about what they do right mm-hmm. they absolutely do otherwise we wouldn't get them we, on otherwise we, yeah we wouldn't get them on right uh ricky i speak to ricky for 40 minutes or whatever it is and a few hours later he, he sends me this 1200 word essay <laughs> basically on what he feels like he wanted to say more about ai specifically he talked quite a bit about ai he's been he's been looking at ai and talking about ai for a long time so, mm. you know, for 10 years i guess um and uvu uses ai practically um but he's looking at generative ai now and thinking holy crap this is going to change our business and yeah you know, yeah I guess he felt that we didn't talk enough about about that on the podcast. So he's really set the bar for future Media Voices podcast guests. You now have to write a 1200-word essay about your chosen subject. 
Yeah, we will be. I mean, effectively, we are basically saying, yeah, we want a an essay length <laughs> exploration of something that we didn't get to on the podcast. Well, before we get into Ricky's interview, then, and even before we get into publishing Ricky's article, we'd like to say thank you to Glide Publishing Platform for the support for this episode and the entire series. So, if you don't know them yet, Glide is a content management system for publishers, which means you do not need to get involved with software, having to spend all your time and money iterating and experimenting with the CMS that you'll have to get rid of or redo in a year anyway. So services like Glide do all the content management for publishers of all sizes, large to small. So you can just go on with running titles and sites and being the success that your audiences need you to be. So there's no need to get roped into building any of the backend tech. You can just use their cloud solutions and away you go. If you want to know more, go check a look at gpp.io. And thanks again to them for the support this episode and the entire series. Peter, how did you begin the interview? Well, as always, I asked him how he got where he is today as a former tech CEO from starting out as a local news reporter. Yeah, so I, I always wanted to be a journo um, from when I was 12 years old. Um, it's all I, it was my chance to see the world. I came from a small town called Cainsham near Bristol and you were going to work in a double glazing factory, uh, you know, if I'd stayed there. And I, it just wasn't my path. I wanted to see the world. My dad was in the Navy. He was a big adventurer, and he pushed me to do it. And so I left home at 16 um, and went to be a, a local news reporter um, and absolutely loved it and then realized really quickly that, you know, if I played my cards right and if I used my energy, um, I could find my way up that path. And so fairly quickly, I went from the Bath Evening Chronicle, tiny little local daily paper, um, to the Exeter Express and Echo, where I ended up on the news desk. I was about 18, I think. And then I went from there to the South Wales Echo in Cardiff, uh, following my bosses, um, went with them. And then the opportunity was that in, in Cardiff, I was working on the news desk and um, the war in the Balkans happened. Uh, so we had the Bosnian War started, and it, I figured out it was a war I could drive to, and it felt like a, a kind of career-making opportunity. So I, I talked my way onto a onto an aid convoy, um, and went over there in a transit van, and ended up spending nearly four months covering the war, um, and that kind of got me on the radar of the national papers in London because I was. I wasn't affiliated. I wasn't embedded with the army. I was completely freewheeling and literally driving from one side of the battle lines to the other. In in all of the stories of people that have had exciting careers, a lot of it turns out to be a bit of pluck and a whole load of luck. And that's really what happened to me. I I went back to Cardiff afterwards and I was driving up from Cardiff straight down the M4 to London to shift in the evenings after having worked on the news desk during the day in Cardiff. And on about my fifth or sixth shift, I was at the Daily Express and the, um, and the, the Bosnian forces, um, overran, uh, an army base of the, um, of the Welsh guards. And because I would, was working in Cardiff and because I was in Bosnia, um, I'd been to that base. And I'd met all the soldiers and then I'd come back to Cardiff and spoken to all their families um, and found all their families. And so there I am sat at the Daily Express on my shift, sitting there quietly. And I just kind of sheepishly walked up to the news desk and said, hey, 
that story about the Welsh Guards, here's all of their telephone numbers, all of their photographs, all of their families. And we ended up with like six or seven pages of the Daily Express the, the next day. Um, none of it under my byline, by the way, but anyway. And um, and they said, look, you know, ace job. And they, they got me a job at the Sunday Mirror. And that was that was my entry into into the nationals. So, you know, I suppose the lesson to take away is if you get the chance to go and put yourself in their eye line, take it because you never know when it will work out in your favor. So how did you get from that to basically running a tech company? Actually, starting up a tech company, that's uh, that's the big step, right? Yeah. Well, being a journalist gives you lots of unusual skills, right? Um, you have to be able to communicate complicated things. You have to learn things quickly. You have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be fearless, energetic, self-starter, all that kind of stuff. It, every journalist is an entrepreneur. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a journalist, right? No one goes into journalism for the money, do they? Or because it's an easy ride. Yeah, that's not the reason you choose to do it. You do it because you have a passion, a mission. It wasn't, I didn't have an intention to end my journalism career being a direct reporter or news desk or managing editor or whatever. I just eventually figured that what I was doing was good for one media company, but the media industry as a whole needed bigger solutions. And I kind of thought I had some ideas for that. And so I figured that video was the thing that needed fixing the most at the time. Um, it's probably AI now, but at the time it was video. And I knew enough about that to try and fix it. So um, I started Uvu with the intention of putting a relevant video in every article in the world because I knew that every media company in the world had the same problem with video. If we could find a way to productize a solution for the entire world for publisher video, then we'd be successful. And so um, it was kind of fashionable and exciting to be a uh, an entrepreneur. And so that was how Uvu started, just bloody-minded, journalistic approach to go and solve a problem I knew everybody had. How long ago was that? started the company in December uh, 2017. Um, and um, it's hard work, right? You know, we went four years before we were funded, went four years without a salary. Um, and But, you know, then when we got funded, the company grew really quickly. Um, and, um, yeah, it's all turned out to be very worthwhile. So now you've stepped back. Is that is that the right way of putting it? Stepped back. Oh, this is a tough one. Yeah, look, um, Uvu now delivers video to about 400 million people a month across publishers around the world. Uh, so it got really big and it's now a proper company. It's not a startup anymore. It's a proper company and it needs different type of management um, to run a company when it's a big company rather than when it's a small company. And I just realized that that I'm a startup guy. I want to create things. And I was in the way. I'm not the right manager for a company that's mature. So we spent a year planning for a handover to a new CEO. And five weeks ago, I handed the company over to uh, him and to the board. And I've, I'm now doing my absolute level best to stay out of their way while they do what the company needs to do. And now, funnily enough, I've dropped out of that, out of Uvu, at just the point that AI is impacting on the entire world. And so timing is everything. Um, and so, you know, I happened to be on a news desk on the M4 when a war started in Europe. 
Uh, I've just stepped out of a company that I started after a couple of years right into the dawn of the AI era. So for me, it feels like another luck, another opportunity to go and really focus on that because that's really going to impact on the media industry. So I'm interested in this idea that you left a publisher, you know, and a big publisher to go off and, and, and start a technology company. Why not make that technology inside that publisher with all the support that they could have? Yeah, it makes sense that that's what you do, right? So understand a little bit of the journey here. So I was managing editor of digital, um, at News Corp in Australia, um, and loved the job, but I also knew that I'd really have to break some eggs and I'd really have to uh, adapt quickly, probably more quickly than I could in a big company and take risks that that company would be uncomfortable with. And so I, I, I took quite an unusual strategic decision. Despite holding that senior management position at News Corp, I quit and I took a maternity cover six-month job at MSN uh, doing entertainment and video uh, from Microsoft. And the reason I did that was because I took a massive pay cut. But the reason was I wanted to go to a tech company trying to be a media company to see how they were going against a media company trying to be tech. And I wanted to see which of those two companies was going to get to a sweet spot, sweet spot first. And I found that neither of them really had a direct line to get there. And so that's why I was so certain that there was a need for an entrepreneurial approach. So now I had a, some tech experience and I had a lot of media experience, it made sense that I could probably bring those two two together um in a in a in a in a venture of my own that could service both. And and that's why I did it that way. I just needed to be unencumbered. I needed to not have to write a fifty five page business plan. I needed to be able to take fifty five seconds to make a decision and try it. Um and that that's that's why I did it that way. Um yeah. So, so the simplest way to do it fast was to take the risk and do it myself. So the other way that publishers do this is they go to the platforms and they take advantage of whatever functionality the platforms are delivering. I've seen, particularly on LinkedIn, you set yourself against some of that. I, I heard you talk about them as trillionaire delivery boys, paper boys. Mm. That relationship between big tech, not necessarily startups, but the, between big tech and publishers, how do you see that? Do you see that as broken or fixable? or How do you see it? Oh, it's broken and I don't think it is fixable. Um, but I think that actually the media... I'm contrarian here. I think the media holds the high ground here. So my trillionaire paperboy commentary that's been picked up a couple of times is about the fact that I sat in a newsroom or went to a war or found something out. That's really hard to do. And then you have to prove it. You have to publish it and you have to feel really proud of it. And that's what journalism is. But I also was a paperboy when I was young, which was my job to take someone's brilliant work stick it on the back of my bike and then ride it and throw it into someone's garden. Um, and all that search is and tech is really for me in the world today is distribution. Um, so they're the paper boys. They're not the creators. And the Internet's nothing without the content that we create. And I know people talk about this a lot, but there's a lot more to it than just 
getting it to the end consumer. The stuff has to be created in the first place, which is what we as a media do. And no one listening to this, I'm quite sure, would disagree with that, right? I'm not necessarily a believer in this content is king argument. I think there's more to it. But I do think that technology, technology, actually, it's another line that I've used on stage a lot, which is that technology can be learned, but trust has to be earned. And so our media brands have got 50 or 100 years worth of trust and knowledge behind them. But technology, I mean, congrats, well done, Google, but you're not even old enough to drive a car yet. And I think that there's a whole lot more that they need to learn to be a responsible corporate citizen. And so I think that we as an industry, I don't know that we need to work with them. I think by the time they figured out what we do, we'll have worked out the tech. So I actually think we hold the high ground. What I'd really like the media industry to do is to recognize that there are passionate, argumentative believers like me that come from this industry. I think that we should be used more because I think we have a lot to contribute just because we're not in the industry anymore doesn't mean we're not still in love with the industry. Do you think the industry develops this kind of weird conventional wisdom? You know, that kind of Kool-Aid idea that everyone starts to say content is king or when you hear CEOs standing up saying, oh, we're not a media company anymore, we're a tech company, and you just want to kill yourself when you hear that crap. Uh, I think if content was king, we'd be in a palace and we're not, we're in a problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I think there's more to it than just that. It's an easy thing to say. But as an industry, we need to stop thinking about how we adapt what we used to do in the past to the shape of the world that someone else is creating. And it's for us to create the future that we need for our industry to thrive. So why do we need to be on search engines? Why don't we create our own search engine for the industry? Uh, you know, if I've managed to create a solution with Uvu that enables you to find a relevant video for every article by putting 500 broadcasters into a box, why can't we put 500 publishers into our own search engine and charge people to use it? Right. A search engine is not very hard to build. You know, we've got AI ahead of us now. Why don't we limit access to all of our content for those AIs? Everything that's out on the open web right now is already out. That's gone. The horse has bolted. But everything we do tomorrow isn't. So in a conversation I had recently with one of the AI companies, they were like, well, we already know all the information. I said, well, that's great. What's the biggest story in the world next Tuesday week? If you know everything, you don't know, do you? And when that story happens, who's going to cover that for you and make sure that your AI knows about it? It's going to be us. So it's unbelievably arrogant for you to say that you already know what's going to happen in the future because you don't. You might understand how the tech works, but that just means you're a paper boy that knows the route. I see a couple of problems there. The first one is is just getting publishers to cooperate with each other because we're notoriously, notoriously bad at that. That is entirely true. But fighting with each other, we're not going to be put out of business by the publisher down the road because we coexisted for half a century or longer. That was never an existential threat. That was an ego threat. Um, and it's the same now. But we are at a point where our industry is now worth one tenth of what it was, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so we are being put out of business uh, existential threat by the tech companies. And so we should collaborate now as an industry. Um, and it makes tons of sense for us to do so because we can all thrive together, but we're not going to survive without each other. And so we have to find a way to work together. And enmities that we've had just because they're convenient or because they're historic makes no sense at all. And so Uvu did a great job in that by persuading PA and Bloomberg and the Associated Press 
uh, and AFP all died in the wall competitors, Reuters, to distribute all their content through us to all publishers um, because they knew that getting a relevant video on every article was worth far more than getting their video on three. Right. And so it just requires new thinking and it needs someone to really push hard at that. Um, and the industry can collaborate. That's a choice. So when we're all sitting here in our industry worrying about what the next five years of our business might be or wondering how we manage our next round of job cuts, why don't we stop thinking like that and figure out what actual sustainability looks like? And if the answer is we work together and that means that we all survive, I think you will say yes. So I think we need to view it through that lens. I mean, what you said about AI is interesting. I'm hoping to talk next in this season to Rafa Ali at Skift. One of the things that Rafa did with AI is focus the learning model just on Skift content, which is exactly what you're talking about. But you're talking about that at a different scale across, you know, a load of premium publishers or, or whatever that looks like. That sounds like a brilliant idea, but why? Why do you think publishers aren't already talking about that? Maybe they are. Um, I think they have to be. What would think about how easy that is to fix? At the moment, we all publish our content to the web, where it immediately gets taken. So, you know, uh, I used to be news editor of the News of the World, and we used to work really hard to keep our stories exclusive. Uh, so that we could sell them and have them read by 60 million people on a weekend. Um, and here we are now that our stories are exclusive for 0.00034 of a second when Google indexes exclusivity doesn't work in that model. So wouldn't the sensible thing to do would be to get all of the members of INMA and all of the members of WANIFRA to all agree as an industry to put all of our content into one data center and then to put a firewall up on it and not to just let it all go out to the world. Let's be selective of where it goes. Why don't we uh, get a coalition of the willing amongst publishers to control distribution? It's incredibly uncomfortable for media companies to think about that because, you know, at the moment, you know, the number of page views I generate is where I sit in my uh, uh, league table of, uh, of excellence. But if it's not paying you any money, what's the point? You can't buy a Mercedes with page views. It doesn't count. It just doesn't work. And so what we need to do is we need to think about how do we secure our content and then allow it to go to the people who are going to pay for it. We've done it already with paywalls on our sites. Why don't we do the same thing with search engines and with AI? Why don't we put it in a locked box and only let it out to those that are going to pay for it? So that idea of collaboration is one thing. What about regulation? Uh, you know, people are even what what Sam Altman's already talking about. You need regulation in AI, but I'm thinking more broadly, just regulation of tech in general. Do you think that's useful, important? I think it's important. Um, I think it takes too long, um, and by the time it's been done, the horse has bolted. So uh, you know, as we're recording this, uh, OpenAI, the Chat GPT company, has been uh, you know, kind of known to the public for about five, six months. Um, and in each of those months, it's added the entire value of News Corp to its market cap. 
right? So it's already five times as big as News Corp after five months. It's right that they should talk about regulation, but it's also a really good way of ensuring that the government moves more slowly, right? So, of course, we have to ensure that we have ethics for AI in the same way as we have rules for publishers, but those rules typically haven't applied to tech companies. And when they are applied, it's usually so late that the company's already a trillion dollar company and a billion dollar fine doesn't matter. So I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is here long before we get to regulation, we're going to have to have an industry wide technology solution long before we need to get to governments fixing it. A decade is going to be too long. Do you really think that open AI is going to be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm really, really worried about what the UK government or the Australian government or the Canadian government's going to do when their company's worth $2 trillion and rising. What, what about plays like, I don't know, Gannett suing Google or the Canadian government saying they're not going to place ads with Facebook or, you know, those kind of things. Would they make, would they make a difference? They're all the right things to do. Here in Australia, we were, we were the first uh, uh, to give this a go uh, in trying to uh, regulate. You know, we had a situation here where Google and Facebook both boycotted news content. I'm sure you might uh, remember, you know, what actually happened. If you went to try and find an article on a newspaper here during the height of COVID, um, it relocated you to a newspaper that Google had chosen in America. I mean, uh, that's, that's outrageous. Um, and, uh, you know, if you uh, when Facebook decided to turn off news, they also turned off all of the health authorities that were telling you where to get your children immunized for COVID. You know, these are the people we're supposed to believe are in control of the tech, right? It felt like a colossal error. We're about to see the same thing happen in Canada, and it's going to spread country by country by country. I do think that we should fight those fights, but we those those are just battles. It's not the war. The war is the control of the distribution of content. And in AI, I mean, think about this, right? So this is when it really starts to get scary. If you go to a generative AI or gen AI website now, uh, you can download an app for 15 bucks and ask it to write for you, please, like in the style of the BBC. And please go and find these 12 BBC stories and rewrite them for me so they're not identifiable. And then please republish them on the web under these URLs and then add programmatic advertising to them, please, and send me the check. That feels like a problem even worse than anything we've seen previously. So the sooner we lock down access to our content and make it available in a way that we own as an industry, not one that's effectively imposed upon us by a technology solution, then we're in control and not the paper boy. And that has to happen. Copyright. I had a chat with the copyright agency the other day and I said to them, surely where does copyright fit in this? And their response to me was, it takes us five years on average to bring a copyright action and five copyright infringements have happened in the time that we've been having this conversation. Which means we're 25 years away from resolution just on the offences committed in the last 60 seconds. There is no way copyright can cope. So if we're an industry and we want to control our future and we actually care about this, Let's stop sending our content to the web for free. Let's put it in a box. Let's make the walls on it very high. Let's top it with razor ribbon. And let's only let it out to people that we want to work with. Right. Wouldn't it be fun? And I'm being a bit mischievous here. But wouldn't it be fun if the entire media industry said that it would only sell its content to Google or Microsoft? What price do you think you'd get then? The issue of that one, again, for me, comes right 
back to that collaboration thing, though. It's a united front. How do you make that happen? Well, Google is a $2 trillion company. Microsoft is a $2 trillion company. And OpenAI is about to be a $2 trillion company. If Google or Microsoft, which owns 49% of OpenAI, if only one of those companies is going to have access to all of the world's news stories from January 1, 2024, how much do you think they're going to pay for that? So do you think the industry is interested in trying to find a way to limp along and earn some money from advertising on the way? Or are they more interested in being paid $20 billion a year, rising in line with the value of the company for their content going forward? Do you think an auction between Google and Microsoft would be worth something? I do. I'm not entirely sure it's it's a more ridiculous idea than thinking that we're going to continue to be paid for advertising when open AI means our entire homepage can be stolen in 10 minutes. You've been talking about AI for a long time, right? You, you were talking about it 10 years ago. I actually had a rumour that you were at a conference in Vegas where your billboard was bigger than Britney. <laughs> that is true. Uh, that's an ego thing. I was asked to speak at a conference for IBM, and IBM had a massive billboard over over um, over the uh, Las Vegas Strip. It's the first time I'd ever been to Vegas. I nearly fell over in the street as I went past the... Uh, the billboard, but the um, as if there wasn't enough to see in Vegas. Um, yeah, look, we start. We we've been using AI uh, Uvu uh, since the company started in 2017. The logic was we wanted to be be able to build technology that could read articles, watch videos, and match them together. That was the first idea. Um, but then what we did was we then hired a global newsroom, so the technology would say, "Hey, this article and this video are probably the same." A, a newsroom would then say, yes, they are the same or no, they weren't. And then that would then feed our AI to make a better decision next time. And then after that, it would then be published on an article page. The journalist at the publisher would put the video on the page and that would teach the AI that the the video was a good match. And then if people watched it, that would then reconfirm that it was a good match. And so we use what's now being called as human reinforcement. It's now a thing that all the AI guys are really excited about, but we discovered it years ago because we're journalists and we're smart. Um, and uh, we knew that, right? You write a story on the front page of your paper, no one reads it. Guess what? It's not a good story. Um, you know, and now they call it human reinforcement technology. It's like it's like they're trying to teach us stuff that we've perhaps known forever. Um, but, uh, yeah, we used tech, uh, used AI, and here we are now, Everybody's catching on to what we effectively have been doing forever. So I, I, I get really irritated by this idea that the media industry is an old, curmudgeonly industry that you know doesn't understand tech. We know things that tech just doesn't know, right? Um, and we should be paid appropriately for that. Um, and I don't think that we should feel downbeat or downtrodden or outmoded. I just don't buy this story. The reason people use the Internet, by the way, just to remind you, isn't because of the awesome technology. It's because of the things they find on it. And a large chunk of what they find on it is created by us. So be proud, right? Be proud of what we do. Uh, there's an article, brilliant story in the Washington Post the other day. It basically looked at what the sources of, um, which sources were being used to teach uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT. Yeah, more than 90 of the URLs were from the BBC, Right. Uh, you know, dozens and I think four of the top 10 were media brands. So if we're not worth anything to the tech industry, which is what they keep telling us, by the way, this is what Google and Facebook keeps telling us every time they decide to boycott a country 
It's because the news isn't worth anything. Oh, until it is when we have to use it to teach our AIs, in which case it's massively important because it's 40 percent of the entire Internet. So let's just be careful about believing what they say, because it's convenient to say that in the same way as it's convenient to say, hey, government, we really, really need you to start working, please, on some kind of regulation, because we know it's going to take you a decade. Right. That's also terribly convenient. As journalists, it's our job to be professionally sceptical. We seem to have forgotten it when it comes to tech. Do you think that's part of the point, is that publishing companies stop thinking like publishers and try to start thinking like tech companies? If, I, if one more person tells me, I think we're still in the frenemy phase. <laughs> you know, it's just so astounding that anybody could still think that's the case. Full-on enemies. Uh, it, well, I don't, I don't think they set themselves up to be an enemy. But if they see that the path they're taking is taking them to a trillion dollars, they're not going to stop, are they? And if they mow us down as they go, right, that's okay. Somebody at Google said to me once, right, we were having a friendly chat and I knew them well. And they said, Ricky, look, the thing you have to realize about Google is, is that the way we see ourselves is that we're like a big friendly bear. Okay. And we're, and we're in bed together, right? So you're lying on one side and I'm lying on the other and I'm a bear and you're Ricky. And then during the night, I think you're terrific. I, I really like you. But during the night, unbeknown to me, I accidentally rolled over and smothered you and killed you. That's how we feel. So I think that's the real problem. It's not that you're a bear. It's maybe that I don't want you in my bed. I used to be news editor of the News of the World when it was at its peak. When we moved and, and, and spoke, that sound resonated with millions of people. It still does. But instead of us now being seen as a lion, it feels like we're some kind of wounded wildebeest just waiting to be picked off. Why? Why? We still do what we do. We should be proud, right? I don't, I'm lucky insofar as I, for the last decade, I haven't been sat in those newsrooms dealing with that sense of impending doom. I've been outside building a company. So maybe I'm lucky to still have the afterglow of having been in the exciting period and missed the downturn. But I just want to say to you and all of my friends, many of whom I'm sure listen to this, is it ain't over, all right? People are still reading the news every day. The, con the, the, the consumption of our industry, or of, of what we do, is going up, not down. What we've got is a business problem, and we as an industry need a solution to that not one person nailing it. We don't want a future where one or two companies that have done a good job survive and thousands go by the wayside. We need a plurality of media, which means we as a media industry need a solution. You're going to lead the revolution? Is that what's next for Ricky Sutton? Creating media militancy? <laughs> Uvu broke a mould by going out and getting lots of people to work collaboratively for a better outcome for everyone. 400 million people get access to video today that didn't get it before we started Uvu. And nobody thought Uvu could win, but we did. There's no reason why a collaboration of publishers can't win now. We're so much more powerful together. It's sometimes when I, when I go to uh, industry events and I hear all the great ideas and I listen to people talking about the things that they're doing, but then when you get to the bar, people are a bit more modest and a little bit more downtrodden and you you look at all these media industries and, and, and individually we're ants fighting against elephants fighting against big tech but as an industry we're a bigger elephant so wouldn't it make more sense to fight with the power that you have it's not about militancy it's about partnership 
It's about our industry standing up for what we believe in. We've got industry groups. Let's let's find a way to think together, right? Because I worry that this AI era is going to be more damaging than any of the ones we've seen before. It's going to be worse than the internet. It's going to be worse than search. It's going to be worse than social. I hate to say it, but I really hope it isn't. But this one could be fatal. So if we have to find a way to work together, surely now is the time. Well, thanks so much to Ricky for his time on the recording and for this essay that we'll be publishing. (laughs) Uh, And thank you to Peter for actually doing the interview as well. And a final thanks goes to Glide Publishing Platform for their support, not just for this episode, but for the entire series. Please do go to gpp.io and check them out. But for now, thank you so much for listening. Peter, who have we got coming up next week? Mr. Rafatali. Some of the biggest big noises I'm expecting from that Uh, one. I've just spoken to Rafa and he's brilliant. He's just, he really, really knows his business, the mm. media business, and uh, he's got some great things to say. So, yeah, he's next week. He keeps getting cited um, by guests, doesn't he? As like somebody who's yeah. got his finger on the pulse of what it is to, do, to have a successful media business. Yeah, 100%. Nice. Well, look forward to that. But until next week, when we'll be back with Rafat, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.